Aloha. Well, I've been on I've been on vacation, and I had the privilege of going to the uh, Garden Island of Kauai. And if we replied like that there, they wouldn't have accepted it. They would have said Aloha. <laughs> See, you guys are just mainlanders. You're not really you're not really in the Aloha spirit right now, which is which is all right. But we had a great uh, trip with my family. We got to go on vacation. We actually have these friends uh, who have really. Uh, been good friends to us in that they've offered us to go on trips with them. They have a timeshare, and they offered us to go out there and stay with them for free. And so you can't really pass that up, right? Uh, And so that really uh, was a blessing to our family. And they've taken us to the island of Maui before, but now they transferred their timeshare over to this uh, island of Kauai, the Garden Island. And my friend, he calls me on the phone, and he's like, you know, Maui's more for tourists, but this island, this is the island of adventure. Do you want to go on an adventure? Like, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you that question, but it's kind of unnerving, you know? And I'm like, sure, I'm up for adventure. I just got a three-year-old, so that's all the adventure we can handle. Three, whatever we, whatever's up to three years old, right? So if you don't know my family, uh, my wife was up here singing, but here's a picture of us, I think, at a luau on the island of Kauai. Uh, so there's the Christmas card that we took while we were there. That's a real peacock. That's not even photoshopped in. So here's my kids. This is, uh, this is Tyler and Emma. They're in elementary school. And then here he is, uh, Jack, who's three years old. And right now, uh, he worships me, basically, which someday he's going to have to repent of as sin. <laughs> but for now, it's pretty nice. You know what I'm saying? And so that, that's daddy's boy right there. And so he's like, hey, we'll go on an adventure. And I'm like, sure, whatever Jack can handle, right, that's what we're up for. And, and so I kind of forget about that conversation. We're, we're on this beautiful island. We're having a great time. And all of a sudden, we're pulling off onto some side road in some neighborhood. And we're like getting off. And it's like, hey, we're going to go on a hike right now. You know? It's like, okay, this is the adventure part, right? And I'm like, we're, great. Where's the trail? Where's the rails? Where's the safety stuff? No, we're just going out in the middle of nowhere. We're just hiking, okay? And uh, so, okay, here we go. And so I've got Jack. And because he can't really hike, and I'm holding him, and it's been raining, and it's muddy, and I slip and lose my balance, and me and my three-year-old fall down. We hit the ground hard, and I'm thinking, we're going to the hospital, right? Uh, But no, we get back up, and the hike goes on, right? And, And we go down to this waterfall that between us here was actually a very lame waterfall, and I'm like, why did we walk all the way to this? This wasn't worth it, you know? And, I, and we almost died on the way here. Like, what kind of a vacation is this? Where am I right now, right? And then we have to get back out of there, right? And, and it's just so slippery. And my wife is looking at me when we're back in the car, and she's like, I was literally hanging on to tree roots for my life coming up that hill. I thought our son was falling, and I caught him. He wouldn't be in the car right now if I didn't catch it, right? Happy vacation time, right? So they're like, hey, what do you want to do the next day? We want to go to this place called Queen's Bath on the island of Kauai. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Well, we're going to go to Queen's Bath. And I'm like, well, how intense is this compared to what we did yesterday? Oh, this will be short and easy. Like famous last words right there, everybody. Run. If they tell you short and easy, flee, right? Because we get back into the hiking and it's muddy and it's treacherous and we're like handing kids to each other to make our way down the trail so the kids don't perish, right? At one moment, my son kind of slips a little bit, and I'm like, oh, no, if he falls. And I realize it's a 50-foot drop down straight to his death if he does slip. And the only thing holding him up is my wife's hand grabbing onto him, right? And I'm like, are we almost past the intense part of this hike yet? Oh, of course, yeah, the hairy part's done. And then you get to the next corner, and it's even more treacherous, right? 
And so we're going to this place. Here's a picture of it. It's like this massive tide pool right down by the ocean. And so, yeah, that looks all happy and nice. No, as we're walking out of there, there's a sign that says, don't come here, 29 drownings. That's, that's literally, missed that one on the way in, but there, there it is right now, right? <laughs> Apparently, the tide can come in at any time and take you out to sea. That is the fakest picture of me you've ever seen in my life. It is not thumbs up. I'm not having a good time. I feel like I'm going to die, or someone in my family is, which to me sounds even worse, right? And we go back and we look up Queen's Bath online, and we've like got this website we've been referring to, all these cool places to go in Kauai, and they say, Queen's Bath, the only reason we even bring this place up is to tell you, don't go there. It's not safe. It's dangerous. And a lady gets on the comments, and she's like, yeah, just because you're a tourist doesn't mean you're going to live. You're all going to die if you go here. And we're like, what are we doing, right? See, what we're here for today is a short and easy church service. And the truth is, the truth is that some of you are in great danger, actually. Now, I'm not even joking, right? The truth is that some people are coming in here thinking that you're just having a good life and that you are uh, believing in Jesus Christ and that you are saved and everything's going to work out fine. And the truth is, you are so close to destruction right now and you don't even know it. That's what we're going to learn in the Gospel of John. Turn with me to John chapter 20 as we get into it. Okay, we've got a massive problem in that we have said that everyone should believe in Jesus, but here's the problem. We don't know what it means to believe in Jesus. John is going to tell us here today that's the point of why he wrote this Gospel, so that he could define for us once and for all what it means to believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Look with me. We're going straight to the end of the book for our introduction. You want to know what it's all about? We're giving all the spoilers out here this morning. This is John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It's on page 907 if you got one of our Bibles, and we would love for you to always have a Bible if you come here into our church and to follow along with us. And here he says the purpose of the book is the heading. Well, that's nice. I'd like to know what it's all about. John 20 Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the Apostle John here, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of the inner three closest to Jesus Christ, along with Peter and his brother James. And they were the three closest disciples to Jesus Christ. And now we have four Gospels in our Bible, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the Synoptic Gospels. If you want to write that down, they're called the Synoptic Gospels because all three of them are very similar. They tell the same stories. They, they tell it kind of in a straightforward, kind of chronological way. It feels very similar when you read through all of them, and they're just kind of giving you the facts of here's who Jesus was, what he did, how he died, how he rose again. Now, John is coming on the scene much later when he writes his Gospel. Yeah, I believe the Gospel of John was written much later than the other three. So they were already out there even. They were already kind of circulating. And now John wants to add his voice, inspired by the Holy Spirit, about the story of Jesus Christ as an eyewitness. And he's saying there's so many things 
that I could tell you about what I saw with Jesus. Jesus did so many signs. That's the word he's going to use for miracles. Jesus did so many amazing things that would cause us all to be astonished and to marvel at him. But I've just picked a few. I can't write them all. So I have selected here a few signs that I have put together in what I think is a logical sequence, a compelling argument. I'm going to tell you about his first sign, kind of a smaller miracle, and then I'm just going to build on that all the way through so that you, by the end here, that you would believe in Jesus Christ and you would have life in his name. So this is so helpful. This is actually why John, I, mean, I love the whole Bible, but John's probably my favorite writer in the Bible because he always tells you exactly why he wrote the book that he wrote. He does it here in John, 1 John, Revelation. He says, hey, here's why I'm writing this. And the point of the Gospel of John is super straightforward. I'm going to tell you signs that show you who Jesus is so that you'll believe in Jesus. And if you do believe in Jesus, here's what you're going to have, the life of Jesus Christ, okay? So let's start breaking this down. Before we even get to point number one, two, and three, here's the three things we're going to see over and over in the Gospel of John. We're going to see signs, okay? Miracles. And John, he doesn't give a quantity of miracles. He tells the full story about it. He tells you what was going on before, what Jesus said after to the crowd that gathered. So the stories in John, the accounts of Jesus' life are usually longer than the other Gospels. Like a whole chapter long, he'll tell you just about a conversation Jesus had with someone or one miracle Jesus did for a whole chapter. So we're going to go through a whole bunch of signs. And the point of the signs is to get us to believe that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God who became man, the Son of God, the, the Christ. That means the Messiah. The whole Old Testament has been prophesying that there would be an anointed one, a chosen one, a special one from God who would atone for the sins of mankind, who would save humanity, someone who would restore the relationship that's been destroyed between the Creator and the creation, the bridge between God and man, this Messiah, this Christ. Well, he wants you to believe that that's Jesus. And so the signs are to convince you to believe, and then the evidence of belief, the proof of faith in your life, will be that you have this eternal life, he's going to call it, this quality of life. So that's what we're going to see. This is the grid that we're going to want to start viewing this book through. He's going to give us a sign. He's going to tell us why we should believe, and then eventually we'll start to get more and more with the life that we'll have if that really happens. So go to chapter 1, and let's begin to see how this is going to work. In fact, John, he starts out his gospel different than the others. He doesn't start out with like the birth or the genealogy. He gets, John the Baptist, he gets right into like a, a beautiful prologue here, 18 verses, where he just starts telling you that Jesus is God. And he wants to convince you right away. And he wants to describe for you how awesome Jesus is. Because that's where he wants you to end up. So that's actually how he starts in fact, you maybe have heard John chapter 1, verse 1, which is clearly inspired by Genesis 1, verse 1. He, his, the beginning of his book is inspired by the beginning of the book. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. I mean, that's one of the greatest expressions of the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is divine, that he is God. I mean, that's what we're going to be getting into Tuesday night, just to entice you back. We're going to be going through all 18 of these verses on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night, and we're just going to be trying to show everybody who Jesus is. 
So there's going to be a lot of sermons where the whole point isn't like, hey, go do this or go work on that. No, the point is, do you see Jesus for who he really is? Do you love him? Do you, are you growing in your knowledge of him? Are you more passionate about knowing Jesus today than you've ever been in your entire life? That's going to be the feel of a lot of the gospel of John. So point number one, let's put it down like this. Come and see who Jesus is. That's our theme that we're running with out of the gate. So if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, and you have a relationship with Jesus, you know him, our goal is that you would grow in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior through this series and that you would come and learn more about him or be reminded of things that you've kind of stopped thinking about about him and that would inspire you to love him and to worship him in spirit and truth. And also, not only should we just come and see ourselves, but we should be telling everybody we know. If there was ever a time to invite somebody to church, now is the time. Like when we get into John 1, you're going to see that Jesus and his first disciples used this approach when they would go talk to people and people would be like, you're telling me a guy from Nazareth is really the Messiah? I don't know if I can believe that. Here was the response. Just come and see, man. Just come and check it out. Just come and meet him for yourself. Come and see who he is. So if you know somebody, coworker, neighbor, family member, they're not a Christian, they don't read the Bible. They don't believe any of this. This book was written so that they would. So we should be telling everybody we know, the whole city of Huntington Beach, Westminster, Garden Grove, any place around here, we should be going to people and saying, you got to come and see who Jesus is. Just come to my church one time, try it, check it out, because we're just going to be showing people who Jesus is throughout this gospel. In fact, if I could give somebody one book of the Bible, I know it's one book that's 66 books, but sometimes we even print up one of the books on its own to hand to people who might not want to read the whole thing, but then maybe they'll start with a little bit. What is the book that we hand them to get them started? It's this one, okay? It's this one. So if there was ever a time to say, hey, I know you're not a Christian. I know you don't believe any of it, but have you ever read the Bible? Will you please read the Gospel of John with me? I know you don't go to church, but will you just come and see and just check it out and get a glimpse of who Jesus is? That's what we're going to be doing is showing who Jesus is every week, all week this week, and then every Sunday. Now, go to his first miracle here in chapter 2, and we'll begin to see how the signs lead to belief, which gives the life. Here in John chapter 2, verse 11, the first miracle of Jesus, we're starting out with something just turning water into wine at a wedding here. And we'll, we'll go through it in great detail, but look at the summary statement in John chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs. So here's the first miracle John's saying that Jesus did. He did at Cana in Galilee, and he showed his glory. I was there. I saw how Jesus did this miracle by turning this water into wine right in front of me. It was the glory of God. I saw it. And his disciples, what does it say that they did? Right there, what does it say, my friends? They believed in it. Here it is. It's already working. This is great. Chapter 2, verse 11. Let me show you a sign. Here's something that Jesus did. And when those disciples there, the first disciples, when they saw what Jesus did at this wedding, boom, they believed in him. Okay? Now, what does that mean that they believed in Jesus? Okay? The problem is we think we know what believe means, but in the modern American church right now, we don't know. That word doesn't mean what you think it means. All right? Uh, we got we to let John define it for us. So I'm asking everybody to right now examine the gospel of John with me and let's let him tell us 
what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. And look just later on in this chapter, go to chapter 2, verse 23. And now we're going to see that Jesus goes to Jerusalem, a more populated city, and he goes into the temple and he clears out the temple. And we see a bigger response from a bigger crowd than just these disciples in John 2.23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Man, this thing is really working. He's doing the signs and people are believing. So we're thinking revivals breaking out in the streets of Jerusalem, right? No, look at the very next verse. Look what happens. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Okay? Now, what if I told you that when it said those people, many believed in him, but he didn't entrust himself to them. What if I told you in the Greek, that's the same exact word. Okay? They believed in Jesus. He didn't believe in them. That's, that's how it reads. Okay? It's this very common Greek word. You might have heard it if you've gone to church for a while. It's this word pistuo, okay? Most often, throughout the New Testament, this word is translated faith, or sometimes it's translated trust. Traditionally, in the Gospel of John, it's believe. It's all the same word, maybe different nuances based on the context, but in the Greek language, it's this word pistuo. And what it's saying here, John's going to define belief for us. Well, here's how he's saying it. These people, they believed in him. Jesus didn't believe in them. Like Jesus knew right away that their belief was not a real kind of belief. It was a fake faith that these people had. And Jesus didn't believe in them. In fact, look what he goes on to say. Because, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Hey, newsflash for all of us who've gone to the American church that we've got going on right now. Somebody says they believe, somebody walks an aisle, somebody prays a prayer, Jesus is suspicious of that person right away. How about that? In fact, Jesus even takes it beyond that. He already knows because he is God. He already knows, no, you didn't really believe in me. That's what he's thinking right now. See, in Jesus' mind, in his thinking, there is an entire category of faith that is fake. Does everybody understand that here? Okay. One thing, if you have not heard this before, one thing that you need to understand very clearly that is taught throughout the New Testament is that many people will believe in Jesus Christ. That's how it will look on the outside. That's what they'll tell you. Okay. But they are not genuinely saved. They have a fake kind of faith. Let's just let Jesus tell it to us for himself. Go to Luke chapter 12 with me. I'm sorry, Luke 13 with me. Look at Luke chapter 13. Let's just go to another passage where Jesus says this very clearly. Okay? And if you were reading through the New Testament with us, we're trying to read through the New Testament. We're in the Gospel of Luke right now. We've got this thing on the back of your handout if you're taking notes. It's called Scripture of the Day. We read this this week. We're working our way right now through the Gospel of Luke. And this was something we read. Okay? And this is a very interesting question. And look at Luke 13. Look at verse 22. Page 873 if you got one of our Bibles here. This is Luke 13 verse 22. And he went on his way. Through towns and villages, he's attracting quite a following. Crowds are impressed by his miracles, his teaching. He's teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, here's a good question. Lord, will those who are saved 
be few? Man, wouldn't you like to know the answer to that question? Jesus, how many people are really going to be saved? How many people are you going to save? Is it a lot of people? Is it a few people? How's this going to all play out? Jesus answers his question. We should all pay attention to this. Look what Jesus says. And he said to them, this is verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Question, how many are going to be saved? Answer, doesn't really answer the question. What he does is instead he says, well, I'll tell you this. Many will think that they're going to be saved, but they actually won't be. Many are going to try. They're going to come to church. They're going to read the Bible. They're going to check it out. They might even say, I believe in this. I know this is true. I agree with the information. I know the facts. I believe. They're going to try to enter that narrow door that leads to eternal life, but they won't be able to. How many people does Jesus say are going to think that they believe, but really don't? How many does he say? You guys tell me. Keyword: Many people. And yet here's how it works in the American church right now. If I talk to you and I ask you, hey, are you a Christian? And you say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm like, well, do you really believe in Jesus? I'm the bad guy even for asking you that question. That's how we view it in the church right now. If I even question someone, whether they really believe in Jesus or not, whether they're really saved or not, it's like, who are you to talk to me like that? Who are you to judge me? Who are you to question my salvation? Hey, I'm just here telling you this morning that Jesus questioned a lot of people's salvation. In fact, he's saying that many of them are not really saved. Okay? So why are we making the bad guy the guy who's saying what Jesus said? Is Jesus the bad guy of the church in America right now? Or is he our savior? See, Jesus says there's a category of people who come to church, people who are in this room right now, who would consider themselves saved, but there will be many on the day of judgment who will have this horrific realization, who it will turn bad and it will stay bad forever for them. They'll have that sinking, twisting feeling inside of them that I thought I knew Jesus, but all of a sudden I realize now, horror of horrors, I don't even know him and I'm on my way to hell for all of eternity. That's going to happen to Jesus, says, many people. That's going to happen to And we don't want to talk about it in the church. How ridiculous is this? We know that right here among us, not even just out in the world, no, the people who are striving to enter the narrow door, the people who are calling themselves Christians, right here among us, there's going to be many of us who think that, yeah, I'm in, I'm good. When I die, it'll all be all right. And then they die and it'll be horrible. And we don't want to talk about it? How does that make sense? In fact, you can go to whole churches here in this city and all around America. You can go to churches where they will never question anyone's salvation. They will never warn anyone about what Jesus says here, that there's many fake faith people among us. They don't want to talk about it. It might offend somebody. See? What a false church that is. See? If you ever go to a church and they don't warn people about fake faith, that there's deceived believers, there's people who think they're saved, but they're really not, run away from that church and don't look back have nothing to do with it. Because if we're going to really represent Jesus Christ and say what he said, he made a message very clear. Many are deceived into believing that they're saved when they are not. Point number two, let's get it down like this. Make sure your faith is not fake. So I'm going to be that bad guy here this morning, all right? And I'm going to step on your spiritual toes here today. And I'm going to ask you, are you sure you really believe in Jesus? Like, how do you know you know Jesus? Like, do you have 100% confidence that you're death ready right now? Like, you'll be with him forever? 
I'm going to be the guy who's going to ask you that because I actually think it's not mean or cruel to ask people if they're saved or not. No, Jesus says it very clearly that many are deceived. What's mean or cruel is to hear these words of Jesus Christ where he warns us that many need to rethink where they're at and to not talk to people about it. That's what's mean and cruel. The meanest thing that you can do is give someone false assurance of salvation. That is the most cruelest thing you could ever do to a person is tell somebody, oh, you're good, you're fine, you're all right, when Jesus is saying many are not all right. Don't contradict Jesus Christ in his name. I would not advise anybody here to do that. Okay, look what he goes on to say. Look at this, verse 25. He paints the very clear picture. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door... When it's all said and done, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. You see what's happening here? It's judgment day. And these people, the many, are finding themselves outside the gates of heaven. And they're thinking, this must be a mistake. Hey, Lord, Jesus, I believed in you. I know you. Open the door for me. Let me into heaven. And the chilling words come back to them. I don't know you. I don't even know where you come from. Oh, you claim to know me? That's interesting. Because I don't know you. That's what Jesus is saying. He's warning. He's saying, think about this now because on that day, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to let a lot of people know, yeah, you didn't really know me. And look what they're going to say. They're going to be like, there must be some mistake. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. No, Jesus, I went to church all those times. I read the Bible all those times. I took communion all those times. In fact, you taught in our streets. It was like I was hearing from your teaching. I was singing those worship songs with you. I even told other people about you. But he will say, verse 27, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place where these people are sent, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's what Jesus thought about believing in him. That many people who claim to believe in him really didn't. And he wants to warn those people out of love for them, out of care for their soul. He wants to tell them up front, hey, just realize many people are going to have a horrific realization on the moment of their death, on the day of judgment, when they're going to be thinking that they believed in me and were saved and they're going to find out they weren't. It's not going to happen to a few. It's going to happen to many. In fact, you might be one of the people that it happens to. That's what Jesus is saying. And we get so defensive, and we don't even want to talk about this, and we want to act like we're okay when the Bible, the entire New Testament, is always encouraging you to examine your faith and to know for sure with 100% confidence that you really have been saved. And today we want to just say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, or yeah, I didn't really live for Jesus for a long time after that. I totally kept in my sin, but then I came back later, so I must be all right, because I've believed in Jesus. Newsflash, even the demons believe in Jesus. Just because you believe in Jesus, great. You've now reached the spiritual level of the demonic realm. That's where you're at, my friend. Right? Go to James chapter 2, and you'll see how it says it here. The brother of Jesus, writing in James, he puts it like this. He's trying to help people see that there's a kind of belief that is vain. There's a kind of belief that is fake. And he's trying to make sure that people don't have that fake faith. And and so he says, if you really have faith, what you're going to have, the life that we're going to be able to see the life in you, is the way John would say it, 
The way that James would say it is, if you really have faith, you're going to have works. Look at, look at verse 18. This is James chapter 2, verse 18, page 1012, if you've got one of our Bibles here. And he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And here's the challenge now from James. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Here's what faith is going to look like in somebody's life. He's saying it's going to show up in works that they do, in good things that they do. Like if somebody really believes in Jesus, you're going to be able to see it in the way then that they live. So let's just talk about how works work here at this church. Are we saved by doing works to earn salvation so that we can go to heaven? What do you guys think? Absolutely not. We preach against that. You can't do anything to save yourself. But if you are saved, will we be able to see you doing works as the evidence of a real faith manifesting itself in your life? 100%. James is saying if there's no works, there's no faith. That's what he's saying. And then he knows that people are going to be offended. He knows there's going to be objections. There, he knows there's going to be people who are going to say, well, I you know, prayed this prayer and I did this and I believe, so I've had all these great experiences, so I must be saved. And he immediately addresses that in verse 19 when he says, you believe that God is one? Well, hey, good job. Pat yourself on the back. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Oh, okay. You, you believe in God? Great. So do the demons, my friend. That's what, that's what he says. Now, he quotes here, when it says, you believe that God is one, there in verse 19, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.4. If you're taking notes, or even if you just got a pen, could you jot that in your Bible? Okay, Deuteronomy 6.4 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. If we were living in Old Testament times, if we were from the ancient nation of Israel, uh, if we were one of those people, we would have been holding up at our football games Deuteronomy 6.4. Okay, that, that would have been our, our big passage. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the time frame of the Old Testament, when every nation believed in many gods, in a polytheistic world, we're moving towards an atheistic world. Well, back in the day, everybody believed in multiple gods, all kind of gods. And the nation of Israel stood apart in that they believed that God was one. They believed in one God, Yahweh, their God. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. So he's quoting the most famous verse from the Old Testament to the Jews that he's writing to. Hey, you agree with Deuteronomy 6.4? Great. Even the demons believe in that. And they're actually freaked out about it. They actually tremble because of it. They might even take it more seriously than some of the people sitting here this morning. That's how into it the demons are. They totally understand the reality of who Jesus is. They know that he died. They know that he rose again. In fact, they know better than you that he's going to judge and he's going to destroy. And they know their future destruction is coming and it's coming soon. That's what the demons know. They know everything that you're claiming to know, he says. Just think about John 3.16, the most famous verse. We teach it to kids. It's probably even my favorite verse. Probably many people in this room have it memorized. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, see, we, we, that just rolls off the tongue. We know it. Some of us, we got taught it when we were a young age. And we, and we, sow it, we say it all over the place. We say it in many different situations. We expect that people would know it. In fact, it's kind of been so uh, overused that we don't really understand what it means anymore. It's kind of become cliche almost. It's like, hey, hey God loves you, and if you just believe in him, you have eternal life. We kind of make it, we reduce it. 
We break it down. We make it, we make it simple, almost like something that anybody could do at any moment. Like, God loves you, man, so just believe in him, and it'll all work out fine. I mean, that's basically what we've reduced it down to. When what it's really saying is that you're either going to perish or you're going to have eternal life. In fact, you have one of those right now. And the difference between eternal destinies of destruction and everlasting joy is whether or not you believe in Jesus. So do you even understand what it means to believe in Jesus? Because everything hinges on whether you believe in him or not. That's what the verse is saying. It's saying you better get one thing right in your life, what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You better make sure that it's not fake because it's the difference between perishing and eternity with God. So if there's one thing we got to know, it's this. See? And if you think it's easy to believe, that just shows right now you don't understand what it means to believe in the gospel of John. Because before we even get to John 3.16, we got to get to his earlier conversation with Nicodemus, who was surely a good religious guy who thought he was right with God. And what does Jesus say to him? Right away, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he's not going to heaven. He won't enter the kingdom of God. So you can't just decide one day to believe in God. I mean, who saves who here? What do we believe at this church? Anybody here save themselves? Or did God save you? So is it possible even for a person to believe unless they have been born again? It's impossible. Like unless God does it to you. Unless he draws you to himself. Unless he gives you new life in his son Jesus Christ. How are you even going to do it? That's really the idea behind John chapter 3. Like God's got to give you this new life. And what this new life looks like in your life is it looks like this belief in him that determines everything about you. And, and if you think, well, I'm good because I believe, well, think again. That's what the demons would say. In fact, have you read what demons do when they meet Jesus? Go to Mark chapter 1. It's amazing when you start to study the response of demons to Jesus Christ when they meet him. And you think about it in this context that, that James is comparing people's fake faith with demonic faith. Look what it says here in Mark chapter 1 at the beginning of this gospel, page 836 here. Mark chapter 1, Jesus meets a man who has a demon. And start with me in verse 21. They went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus shows up and he's teaching and people are blown away. Because he teaches them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. He wasn't giving them the watered down stuff that was common in their day. No, he's preaching this message that's so much more powerful and so much more authoritative. And everybody's just blown away. They're marveling at the teaching of Jesus. And then it says immediately in response, verse 23, there was in their synagogue, there's a man with an unclean spirit, a demon. And what does a demon do when he meets Jesus Christ? He cried out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I mean, this demon does better evangelism than I've heard from a lot of Christian people. I mean, immediately he's like, is it the day of my judgment? Have you come to destroy me? I know you, Jesus. You're the Holy One. I mean, he starts just shouting in the synagogue who Jesus is. 
I mean, the demon's clearly shaken up by the presence of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. Jesus isn't looking for demonic evangelism. He doesn't appreciate that. Verse 26, and the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, just imagine the drama of this moment, came out of him. And they were all amazed, I would imagine so. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? This guy, he commands even the unclean spirits, even the demons, and they obey him. How, many got, how come we got so many Christians who will say they believe in Jesus and they don't obey him when even the demons will acknowledge who Jesus is and they do what he says? You see the parallel that it's making here? Look at how the demon responds. Go to Mark chapter 5, an even more intense demonic situation where you've got this man who actually has a bunch of demons possessing him. Here in Mark chapter 5, look at the response here of these demons as they interact with Jesus immediately professing that he is God and wondering what he's going to do with them. So Jesus and his disciples here in Mark 5 verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, as soon as he gets on that side of the sea, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now this wasn't just any guy. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Anybody else freaked out right now? I mean, here's a guy that has some supernatural source of evil strength that no one can control, running around in the tombs, and it gets worse, verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Talk about giving you nightmares. A guy running around shouting and cutting himself. And here, look at what happens when he meets Jesus. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus... Come and see Jesus. Here's how the demon responds. From afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. I mean, here's a demon begging Jesus for mercy. Please don't torment me. Please don't destroy me right now. Why are you here to judge me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? And he, for he was saying to him, verse 8, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. That's a little scary. And he begged him earnestly not to send... Here's demons now, a, a bunch of demons, begging Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. I don't know why they didn't want to go to another country, but they were adamant about it. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So look at this phrase. So he, Jesus, gave them permission. And the unclean spirits, the demons, came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. I don't even want to be in a place where there's 2,000 pigs, much less a demonic horde of pigs drowning themselves. I mean, can you imagine this? I think the demons have a better response to Jesus Christ than some people at church who are like, why are you asking me if I believe or not, man? Get off my back. Come on. Well, why don't you tell me who Jesus is? I can't really answer that question, but of course I'm going to heaven. That's the attitude we've got today. And it's the wrong attitude. 
and we need to change it here at this church. We need to make sure that we've got a level of faith in Jesus Christ that's different than the demons here in this congregation and in your own heart. See, we're asking the wrong question. The question is not, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Even the demons can claim to believe in Jesus Christ. They do, the Bible says. The question is, do you have the life of Jesus Christ, right? You see the signs, you believe, and then where does it take you? To this life that you should have. So we need to change the question. Instead of asking somebody, hey, are you a believer? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? We need to go to the fruit of faith, and we need to ask them, do you really have the life of Jesus Christ in you? Look at how Jesus does that in John chapter 6. Go back to uh, the gospel we're introducing here, the one that we're going to be studying for two years. So these are going to become very familiar pages here. And look at John chapter 6. We'll probably get there around Christmas time. Look at this. John chapter 6, Jesus does amazing sign here. He feeds 5,000 people with only a little bit of food. That's going to be amazing for us to study. And then a massive crowd gathers because people like free food. And uh, so he starts to teach them. And he says to them, basically, not only that they need to see the signs, not only that they need to believe, but by the end of his teaching, he literally says to them that you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like, it's not just enough to believe. Like, you've got to have my life. Like, my life needs to become your life. That's what he's saying to them. Like, it's a very invasive kind of message. Like, basically, you're going to stop living, and I'm going to be your new life, is what he's telling these people, and they're confused by it, they're baffled by it, and and go to the end of the story. Chapter 6, it's a long chapter. Look at verse 60 here. Here's the conclusion of Jesus doing this miracle, calling himself the bread of life, saying that they basically need to eat him. His life needs to become their life. When many of his disciples heard it, verse 60, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? If you were to hear the teaching of Jesus, you would be astonished by his authority. Here's another response. You're, you're like, whoa, this is intense. I don't even know if I want to listen to it. What does it call these people? Are these the skeptics? Are these the atheists? Are these the haters? What does it call these people right here? These are the disciples. Not just the 12. I think they're a bigger crowd it's referring to here. Like sometimes, I don't know if you've ever met somebody and you'll ask them, like, are you a Christian? You're trying to find out if they're a person of, of faith and they'll be like, no, I'm not a Christian, I'm a disciple. You ever met one of those people before? They're hardcore. That's what they want to let you know right out of the gate, right? No, I'm not just a believer, I'm a follower. You see how they say it like that, you know? I'm a follower. They're trying to make a distinction, and I, get, I appreciate what they're doing. They're kind of doing what we're trying to do, is say there's a fake faith and, and there's a real faith, but here, you can call yourself whatever you want. Here it calls them disciples. They're like, I don't even know if I want to listen to Jesus anymore. It's basically what they're saying. I don't want to listen to Jesus anymore. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this because he knows man, he knows our wickedness, he knows the thoughts and intents of our heart, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you were to see me in all of my glory? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. He's looking at a crowd of disciples, learners, followers, and he's saying some of you in this crowd do not really believe in me. This is what Jesus says to his own people. Okay? 
And then it gives us a little comment here. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and specifically one individual who it was who would betray him. So I think this is talking about more than Judas though. He knew some of the ones who weren't going to believe and he also knew that one who was going to betray him, one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, right? And so verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you. See, let's not have this idea that belief is some easy thing. No, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. God saves you. You respond in faith. Verse 66, check this out. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He calls them out. He says that some of them have fake faith and they prove that what he has said is true and that they quit following Jesus because this idea, not just of believing him, but of having his life become their life, it's too hard for them to understand. It's too hard for them to do and they turn back from following Jesus. Right in front of Jesus, he experienced apostasy of people falling away and he knew it was coming and he called it out. And then this intimate scene now Jesus turns to the 12. You can imagine there's this big crowd and many of them leave. And so now Jesus is looking at his 12 that he's named, that he's called, that he's said to follow me, his innermost, closest people on the planet here. And he says, do you want to go away as well? Like, are you guys going to be fake too? And Simon Peter answered him, a response that resonates in the hearts of all of us who are saved. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where in the world would I go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I mean, here's now the difference between fake and and real faith. Here's now the difference between demonic belief and the belief that saves, represented to us by Peter here. Where else are we going to go? Who else would I believe in? You're the only one that by your words teach me what it is to have eternal life, your life given to me. In fact, he says something here about believe that is fascinating. You kind of need to understand uh, the Greek language here. But look back at verse uh, 69. He says, we have believed and we've come to know you're the Holy One of God. Now, when you and I read that in English, we have believed, okay? When I see an ED at the end of the word, I know our kids are going back to school. Let's talk about grammar for a minute on a Sunday morning here, everybody. When I hear believed, I think that's in the past tense. You guys tracking with me? Let's talk about tenses here a minute. We're very familiar with the past tense, things that happened in the past. We're also very familiar with the present tense, right? Things that are happening right now. And usually that's the way we talk. It either happened in the past or it's happening here in the present. Well, in the Greek language, they have this very cool thing called the perfect tense, okay? And that's the way the word is used here. That's the way pistuo is given to us here, where basically what the perfect tense means is, I have something that happened in the past that's continuing now in the present. That's what he's saying by believe. It's not like I believed in you long ago, and now I'm just kind of expecting to go to heaven, just kind of moving through the motions of life after that. No, from the moment that I put my faith in you, I've had this ongoing life. In fact, this life, this words of eternal life that I've received from you, it's this knowledge of you. It's this relationship with you. Maybe it started with information and the facts of who you were, but from the moment I put my faith in you, now it's like I know you. I see you. You're the Holy One of God, and you give to me words that Give me your life. See, it's not did you believe in the past tense. Did you believe in the perfect tense is the question here this morning. 
Has your past belief, since you put your faith in Jesus, there has been a quality of life, a new character to who you are that has changed everything about you? See, now we have to redefine, what is this eternal life? Not only do we not know what it means to believe, we don't really have a good idea of what it means to have eternal life. Because when I say that, the first thing that people think of is life after death, life that goes on forever. But go to John chapter 17, verse 3. And John, who's very straightforward and defines his terms very clearly, he defines for us eternal life here in John chapter 17, verse 3. And we want to get straight to the punchline here of the gospel. No spoilers. We're, we're giving, I mean, we're giving away all the spoilers of the gospel of John here this morning. So let's just get straight to what is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here's eternal life. People who know you're the real God and they know your son that you sent doesn't say anything in the definition of eternal life about the fact that it lasts forever. That's kind of just a nice bonus to it. That's not the point of it, okay? The point of it is not that you would have everlasting life, but that you would know the everlasting one. That is the point of eternal life. It's don't, don't think of it as a quantity of life. Think of it as a higher quality of life. That's what it's saying here. That you are now, one of the people who actually has been reestablished in a relationship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have eternal life. Okay. It's, a great, it's a great definition. It's the way that you and I should think about life. Let's get it down like this for point number three. Define life as knowing God. That's how we should think about it. Do I have a relationship with God where I don't just know the facts about him, I know him and, and, and I, I experience him. We interact with one another. He is always with me. I'm aware of his presence. I know not just the information about him, but a relationship with him. That, that, that's the idea here. Okay? When, if you have eternal life, it's not that you're just going to keep living after you die. Everybody's going to keep living after they die. It's just where they're going to experience that, that eternity. Your soul is going to go on for forever. If you have eternal life, it's like you've reached out through the space-time continuum that we live in, and you've brought in something from eternity, something from the presence of God, and you've brought it back into the reality that we know now. It's like you've transcended the physical universe and you've gotten something, literally you could translate eternal life, the life of the age to come. It's like you got a little bit of eternity now in you. You've got a little bit of the life of God now in you. That's what eternal life really means. Okay? You can't have that life and not be a new kind of person living in a way where you walk with God day by day. Okay? There's no such thing as a Christian person who doesn't have a relationship with God that's a reality. Okay? We've got to talk about the difference between an idea of a relationship and a real relationship. Okay? And, and the best thing that we can use, the closest relationship we've got is marriage. Okay? Despite the lies that you've heard, marriage is an amazing thing. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Anybody want to say a marriage is still a good thing in America? Right? Not some ball and chain experience, not some misery, not something you want to get out of. No, it's a blessing from God if he's given you a spouse, okay? It's a beautiful thing. 
And, and we, we understand the idea of marriage. Even the people here in the room who are not married, they haven't experienced it personally. We are all tracking with the idea that there is going to be a legal document, a, a literal marriage certificate. And there's going to be a ceremony where two people are going to promise themselves to one another. And before God and even the government of our land, those two people will now be considered as one, bound together, joined together by God, never to be separated. And they're going to have this ongoing existence together now. We can all get the idea of that. And then some of us are actually married, right? And and you wake up with it every morning, literally. You know what I'm talking about? It's always there. It's not an idea. It's real. It's ever-present. Like if I go too long without talking to my wife, I literally feel it in my physical body. I miss her. Or I start to get these texts and these phone calls and this like, why have you abandoned me kind of language? Because we're supposed to be in this together. I mean, literally, the, like, we, there's amazing times of intimacy where you feel closer with someone than you've ever experienced before. And then there's times that are just the worst times of your life because there's tension. There's something between the two of you. And, and you just know that there's not supposed to be tension between you and this other person. And you have some misunderstanding, some kind of argument. And then you go your separate ways throughout the day. And you try to act like everything's okay. But it's not okay. Because you're not okay with your spouse. And maybe, you, maybe you're putting on a smile. But really inside, I, you just get wrecked sometimes. Because this is a real person that you love. And things aren't right. And it can't continue like that or you're going to go crazy. Can I get an amen from anybody like that? I mean, it's real. I can't escape it. I couldn't get out of it. It's there. Everything I do affects her. Everything she does affects me. That's such a weak illustration. That's such a bad analogy to what it is like to have a relationship with the God of the universe and to know him and to love him. It's not fake. There's no way you can fake a relationship with God. He's not fooled at all. He's either an ever-present reality in your life or you don't know him. Those are the two options. Like, you're saying, I know God, I love God, but you can go for days or even weeks at a time completely ignoring him, not really wanting to hear what he has to say to you, not really wanting to talk to him. That's not a relationship. You can ignore him and not, it doesn't break your heart. It doesn't, you don't feel bad about it. You don't feel like something's totally missing in your life as you just kind of go through your day not acknowledging God. That's someone who doesn't know him. It's not real. I mean, you want to ask me, what's the best thing you've ever experienced in in your life? What's the greatest moment of joy? What's the greatest moment of peace? What's the best thing for you? I mean, here's what I'm going to tell you. It's not my wedding to my wife. It's not the birth of our kids. It's not some awesome vacation with our friends to, to some island in Hawaii. No, the best moments of my life happen when I'm alone and I'm totally not alone. Those are the best moments of my life. When I experience me and God fellowshipping with one another and I know him and I am known by him. Those are the greatest moments that you'll ever experience. When we're all worshiping God here together and we get a sense of that together. When, when you can be alone and you're not alone, see that's eternal life. When you're having your worst day and yet there's a power lifting you up and there's one you trust in and you lean on him and you look to him and he never disappoints you and he's always there. See, that's eternal life. So do you have something like that with God? 
If, if reading the Bible's a chore, if praying's like always been a hard thing and you never really wanted to do it and you didn't really get it, that's because you don't know who you're talking to. And you don't know who's talking to you and that he's giving you here literally words of eternal life in a relationship with him. So the question here this morning is not do you believe in Jesus? Even the demons believe in Jesus. The question I want to ask you this morning is can you honestly say with 100% confidence that you have eternal life, that you know God and his son Jesus Christ whom he sent and that you couldn't go through a day without thinking about him, without talking to him. And if you even tried to get away with him, he would come after you and he would discipline you and he would bring you back and you want to go back to him. If left to yourself, would you end up in the presence of God? That's eternal life. Do you have that? That's the definition that John wants to define. This is eternal life, that you would know God and Jesus Christ. You know, the last time I went on one of these trips with my friend, we went to the island of Maui, like I said, and we got there, it was beautiful, it was awesome, and I was just literally like putting my feet into the pool thinking, vacation, right? And my phone rings. And I get a call from one of the other pastors at our church that someone from our church was at the same island of Hawaii that I'm at, and they died right there that day on the island of Hawaii while they were on vacation. In fact, as he's telling me this, I'm realizing that I saw an ambulance taking off as I was driving into my hotel, and it was the guy from our church who died right while I'm there on vacation. And then the pastor says to me, so his wife is now widowed and left alone in her hotel room, and you need to go talk to her. What are you going to say to somebody in that situation? And I'm thinking, God, you got to help me with this one. I'm supposed to be on vacation, and now I'm and I'm going to go talk to this woman whose husband just died in the same room that I'm going to go visit her. In her arms he died. And I go into that room and I'm, and I'm wondering what am I going to say. And I go into this room thinking this woman is alone. And one thing becomes completely clear as I begin to talk to her. She is not alone in this room. God has already been here with her. He was with her here the whole time. He has encouraged her. He has built her up. She is saying things about faith. In the worst moment of her entire life, she has such a strong relationship with God. She knows him. She ended up saying more encouraging things to me than I did to her in that conversation. Because she was not alone. Even when her husband was taken away from her in the most brutal way imaginable, dying in the hotel room on vacation. She's giving the glory to God because she knows him. Now this year, uh, when I went to Hawaii, the call didn't come on the island. It came after I got back that someone here from, that's been to our church was in the hospital and they had almost died of a heart attack. And maybe she's even watching this right now. This woman, this kind woman that I've gotten to know, we've become friends a little bit. We've talked about the real things that matter, the things of Jesus Christ. And she has always told me up until this point that she's a believer in Jesus Christ. Of course she believes. She's known the truth for a long time. Kind of the idea like, yeah, I've always believed. And I read the Bible and I try to come to church. I can't always make it. But of course I'm a believer. And then she had a heart attack the other night. And she almost died. In fact, it's kind of this disturbing scene when you get in there and you kind of think about what's really going on because here's a woman who claims belief but doesn't seem to have the life of Jesus Christ and she's just complaining in this hotel since she's, I mean, sorry, in the hospital since she's been there of how hot it is in the hospital. Like she keeps feeling hot. 
And she, when I come in to see her, she's got a towel over her head. She's got ice all around her. She's got fans on her. It's the coldest hospital room I've ever been to in my life. Her daughter even sewed her her very own hospital gown with more breathable fabric because she can't get hum- comfortable because she's always feel, has this burning feeling, she tells me. Right? And we start talking. So do you have that faith in Jesus Christ? She says, when I was there and I couldn't breathe and I felt like I was going to die, she says, I was utterly alone, she says. I didn't know God. He wasn't there with me in that moment. And if I had died, I would have gone to hell. That's what she tells me. I didn't even have to say anything. She knows it now. And she says, will you tell me how to have faith in Jesus Christ? Will you tell me how to have eternal life? I want to have that life right now, she says. Because you can know where you're going to go then by if you know Jesus now. See, Are you alone or do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have eternal life? Do you know the only true God and His Son whom He has sent? Has the belief led to a real relationship? I'm asking you because I care about you. And if you want to talk about this, please. Believing in, in God is impossible. He saves you. But so let someone guide you. Don't just go try to do this on your own. Let someone who has the life of Jesus Christ help you. You got to do it. You got to go through the narrow door by yourself. But I would encourage you, if you know right now, here at this church this morning, that your belief is on the same level of the demons, then don't leave this place today without talking to somebody about it without making sure that you really understand what it means to turn from your sin, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, and to have eternal life. I say this to you because I care about you. I want you to not be one of the many who will be deceived when they die. I want you to know now that you believe in Jesus and that by believing, you have life in his name. That's what we're here to talk about. Please pray with me. God, we just pray that you're... Spirit would be working on hearts right now. God, I know after our first service, there were people crying right here at our church, realizing that what they thought was belief was not really the eternal life that you describe here. God, I just pray for those right now who are experiencing that conviction. The Holy Spirit's working on them. They realize that their definition of belief was was different than the biblical definition, than what John is saying here in the gospel. And that they don't really know you. They don't really have this relationship that they cannot escape. Where they walk in your presence every day. And it's a real connection with you. God, I just pray that you will open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And that they will put their trust in him here today. That they'll talk to someone about it. God, we're asking you right now to give people eternal life here among us, God. Here today on the first day of the Gospel of John and all throughout the preaching of this book that you will draw many people, God. We're asking you to make people born again. We're asking you to draw souls to yourself. We're asking you to glorify your name's sake by saving many people here at this church, God. So God, please, we know that you're the one who saves. Please save people here this morning, God, and those who can hear me now, and they can really have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, what it means to believe in Jesus and have eternal life. God, let them put their faith in you now. Let them believe in you now. 
And let today be the day of their salvation. God, let us come and see who Jesus is. Let us believe in him. And let us share this life with you. Let us know you now and have confidence of where we're going to go when we die. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of Jesus' people said, amen.